Amazing. We are live. Hi, Gobi. Gobi is my good friend and I'm an investor of this company. Uh, just for disclosure. Okay, so let me read a professional bio of yours. Um, Gobi is a co-founder of LD Talent, exemplifies the modern tech landscapes, focus on rapid learning and adaptability, completing his Stanford CS degree in two years, becoming a digital nomad, and then pursuing a master in HCI and AI. Gobi now leads LD Talent while working towards a PhD at Northwestern. LD Talent is a network of diverse vetted developers at ldtalentwork.com, um, encourages continuous learning and productivity, reflecting key trends in the tech industry concerning the future of work, uh, di diversity, and the importance of lifelong learning. Okay, so I'm sorry. I feel like the bio is uh, underkill. And uh, so you guys have clients from YC, Baidu Ventures, Infosys, and StarX. And full disclosure, I'm an investor. Welcome to Venture with Grace, Kobe. Hi, Grace. That was, that was <laughs> awesome. That was an awesome bio. Thank you. Uh, you touched on a lot of what we're doing. And uh, thank you for that. Uh, and I've, I've been listening to your podcast for years now. So, so I appreciate you having me on here. I've learned a lot from, from the various episodes about VC entrepreneurship. Thank you so much. Okay. So, okay. So start with the show, I would love for the audience to get, get to know you a little bit more. And then, you know, like, what are you doing with LD Talent? Where do you come from and why are you working on it? Sure. Yeah. So I am building a platform to hire, manage and upskill diverse tech talent. And I work with two other co-founders, Girja and Anisha, so the three of us. And we have built out this platform. We have over 600 talent on the platform. Uh, we have worked with around 100 customers so far. Uh, the talent are all over the world, but in particular in Africa and South Asia. And a lot of the companies are fast-growing companies, as you alluded to earlier, uh, in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And... Well, what is the reason why I'm doing this? That That's interesting. Uh, I grew up in the Bay Area. I was born in Wisconsin, uh, live in Wisconsin now, and but I've traveled a lot. So I, I've traveled know, 45 countries trying to go to, to, to a lot of them. And especially I try to, I like to go to countries that um, have a GDP per capita less than 10K. So <laughs> they're considered uh, still developing. And one of the things I, I learned um, over the course of, you know, for instance, going to Stanford, seeing the demand for really skilled talent there, and then uh, graduating early, being a digital nomad and traveling the world through places like Morocco and Nepal and such is just how much great talent there is out there and uh, how li little emphasis there is on this overlooked talent. Um, and so I, I know that, uh, you know, over 70% of the world has access to the internet in some form or other right now. You can learn almost anything online uh, through online coursework and uh, different MOOCs, online open courses. So why don't we see uh, it being more fluid? Why do you still see the emphasis on, you know, location and, and you know, COVID, COVID changed things a lot, uh, but still, but still there is a lot of untapped talent. And one of the things that I noticed is that, uh, you know, Africa and South Asia, they're pushing out like hundreds of thousands of engineering grads every year. But these grads are 
you know, raw talent, like bright talent, but mm -hmm. they're not quite like equipped with the specific skills needed by industry. And so we're looking at a very interesting, uh, like kind of arbitrage situation where if you like incentivize somebody in Africa and South Asia to learn some skills, uh, like for instance, if they know Python and you incentivize mm -hmm. them to learn, say, uh, they know Python and linear algebra and say you incentivize them to learn machine learning and PyTorch or something like mm -hmm. that, you could actually double their income. And so we're looking at problems like that and, and seeing like, hey, how do we incentivize their lifelong learning? How do we upskill them to the point where they can be very useful? And how do we create a future of work ecosystem mm -hmm. uh, where they could actually succeed? Uh, and so uh, I think that uh, a meritocracy really where, where we can highlight the work that they're doing. So I guess the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing is, is really in inspired by my travels, um, seeing bright people around the world. Totally. Hi, Manu, by the way. Thank you for joining us. Um, so, okay. So I have a couple questions. So when we're chatting during Christmas, I feel like as someone who have up, uh, you know, who have like, um, higher talent from like Upwork or like other platforms, um, I feel like one of the biggest challenges, like the communication would be a key issue. And, um, okay. So like overall, what I thought your company were doing something really innovative and like impressive is because you really focus on the talent and you know, there's so many platforms they're really focusing on like getting the best clients, which totally makes sense, right? Like, um, if you don't have clients, you cannot pay for your developer, but on the other hand, you are training the developers and then you are like discovering raw talent and like and then kind of like equip them with the skills that they need to succeed one of the things that i found really challenging is like people are having really difficulties to like just communicate with the developers and then it's really hard to vet them um you know i wonder like how do you solve that issues for, from your platform and what are some earned insight in this industry that you kind of feel like we're not really noticing by people. Uh, so the first thing is, this is, both of those are really valid points about communication and vetting. Uh, and there are certainly insights in this industry that you develop over the years. Um, and thank you, thank you, Emmanuel, for, for sharing your experience. Um, I think the one thing is around, uh, there are a lot of great talent out there, especially in Africa and South Asia, who are extremely technically skilled. So they might be a Python expert. They might be able to do anything in Python. But if you are not technical mm -hmm. or if you don't have time, uh, it can be difficult to communicate your needs to them. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where a lot of our newest like sort of developments on our platform are happening is um, we're a very chat-based ecosystem. So like when we use AI or LLMs or integrate with open AI APIs or do prompt engineering or anything like that, mm -hmm. we wanna be thinking about how do we actually reduce the barrier for clients to communicate, regardless of whether the clients are technical or not, help them communicate with the talent and help the talent communicate with the clients and so forth so it becomes seamless. And so the first thing that we set up is not even a um, kind of, it, it, it's just an affordance. Um, and mm -hmm. I can I can, I kind of share it with you. Mm -hmm. But basically it's um, over here, it's just our work session system. Mm -hmm. So the way we track time, it's entirely like sort of, and are you able to see these work sessions here? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so it's a kind of a um, system where you can, uh, where developers describe what they're working on, uh, include git commit links or uh, kind of uh, Figma updates if they're a designer. And the the sessions are 
in our Slack. They're describing transparently what they're working on, what they've achieved, and then those sessions are approvable by clients. This has sort of been the secret sauce is boiling down like all that sort of like, um, you know, what they're doing into simple chat based messages. And then the, then the chat bots can come in and prompt them like, Hey, I would recommend adding this proof of work attribute to this work session to be able to like increase the trust of the client. Um, and then also, uh, what it eliminates the need to say, how's it going basically with your talent, because you can see what they're working on in, in real time. This has been kind of the secret sauce that led to our kind of 85% um, free trial conversion rate. We give out a hundred dollars in free credit and we're seeing like 85% of the time people continue on after that because, um, because of this work session system. It also keeping things in a very chat based um, format um, it makes it easy for us to like, for instance, uh, correct people's grammar in real time, train them on grammar so that we can focus on the actual important thing, which is the technology that's being developed. And so um, that's where a lot of the applications of kind of NLP um, AI come in is in this framework of mind. So, yeah. So is this like real time translation between the engineer and the company? Um, it's I mean, all of our talent speak decent um, English. So it's not like translation, but it's more like um, basically trying to make sure that they're expressing all the details that the mm -hmm. client needs to know um, mm -hmm. and making it transparent so the client doesn't need to worry about how, how it's going, how's it going, basically. Mm -hmm. So um, I'll give you a couple examples to make that a little bit more transparent. So one example is if talent are basically describing, you know, some piece of work and they don't include a proof of work link. Like they don't include like the link to the code that they've developed. Then our system will actually prompt them, hey, you should include the, the mm -hmm. code, right? And that's like something that like eliminate, that's something that t managers waste their time on. And that's something that it prompt, prompt them. If they send a message that's so informal that it's not possible to read, then a kind of LLM based bot will come in and try to fix their grammar for them so that both sides can understand each other. Mm -hmm. um, another example is just um, when talent are kind of uh, going over their estimates. So if they provide an estimate and then they go over their estimates, then the system will come in um, and try to like manage budget control the process. So almost all the aspects that are done manually by project managers um, we're trying to automate those aspects in, in our ecosystem, whether it's through AI or just simple heuristics. Um, but that is one of the ways that we're trying to create a meritocracy so that talent can be successful and so that clients can actually uh, make use of the fact that, or, or leverage the fact that there are, are great talent out there in the world. And um, it doesn't really matter where they are. Um, it doesn't really matter um, what their style of communication doesn't really matter because the platform will take care of that. The only thing that matters is their core technical abilities. Um, and then, so that's how we're trying to, trying to, uh, we do do soft skill vetting as well, but, but we're also trying to do, have the, the platform do some heavy lifting as well. Totally. Okay. So people were saying like prompt engineering would be like a new trend. And then like a lot of the original, coding work are going to be replaced by AI. Like, what's your thought on that? And how will LD prepare the talents on the platform to, you know, equip them with the newest technology? Yeah, so I think that my tenet is that humans should only do what AI cannot do. Mm. Right? So 
humans uh, are responsible for doing things like prompt engineering, right? Mm -hmm. Specifying to the model what you want. And a lot of our engineers right now are working on projects around prompt engineering, whether it's prompt engineering for uh, uh, basically generating custom uh, marketing emails mm -hmm. or prompt engineering for um, when talent propose their lifelong learning projects, we do some prompt engineering to be able to uh, have AI models give them feedback on their projects and steer them towards a project that's unique enough so that they're learning something, but so that it's also within their zone of proximal development so that it's achievable and, so, and also something that's scoped so that we, our financial incentives program can actually like afford to kind of pay them for it and get value out of that when their profile improves. So I think that uh, those are two areas where prompt engineering has been valuable to us. And I mm -hmm. think that um, there will be plenty of work for humans um, as long as they recognize that they should only be doing the things that the AI models cannot already do. And we're certainly doing that with a lot of automation as well um, in terms of our logistical processes, for example, processing applicants who come into our network, automating aspects of interviews and things like that. Um, the fact is that engineers by definition are people who solve problems and designers as well. And so as long as there are problems in the world, there will be demand for engineers and designers. So, so I don't, mm -hmm. that. I, I just see the AI as making it as something that's gonna uh, make it easier to, to, to solve some of these problems so that um, engineers can solve more problems. So, yeah. <laughs> I love that. So I wonder when you mentioned like, you, you know, like when, not when you, but like, I guess like when you're looking at the um, outsourcing ecosystem, we have TopTal, we have Upwork. Um, can you explain to us like their profit margin? Like how does the money flow in the industry and how is LD different from them? Yeah, sure. So basically, there's two sort of paradigms out there. Um, and I can show you one of those comparison screens. But uh, one paradigm is like Upwork, where you don't do vetting, but mm -hmm. you uh, take a reasonable cut. And the mm -hmm. other one is like the other platforms out there, you mentioned um, touring example, and, and some of the others, and, and they basically do vetting, but they take half the talent salary. <laughs> and so um, is there any platform out there that's doing both as something like good quality vetting and taking a reasonable cut while well, we're trying to be that platform. And uh, one, I mean, you can see our pricing on our platform. It's through the work session. So you see the value that you're getting as the sessions are being tracked. Our rates are like 24 to $30 an hour on average for the talent um, around the world. Um, we have talent um, basically 15 plus per hour for talent, but generally on average, I think the average rates around 24 an hour. Um, and uh, basically you get good value because the sessions are showing the quality of work. They're creating this meritocracy. Um, we even publish our profit margins. Our entire data is on our WeFunder um, profile. You can see what our revenues are, what our gross sales are, what our profit margins are. We're pretty transparent organization on that front. Um, and like, yeah, if you look at some of the other platforms out there, a lot of them, uh, they'll take half the talent salary. Um, and uh, if they do any vetting or they just don't do quality vetting. Um, and the other thing out there is that at, at some point relationships develop, right? Like we recognize that, like you're doing a startup, you work with the developer for over seven, eight months, 10 months, and then you realize, hey, if I want to like hire this person directly for full time, 
um, is it reasonable? And our breakout fee, our platform breakout fee is fairly reasonable um, compared to some of the competitors. So, so yeah, um, I would definitely say that this is something that's uh, worth considering and that uh, a lot of the, there are a lot of competitors out there in this talent space, but almost none of them are looking at problems the way that we are in terms of value and in terms of um, the absolute surplus of um, raw intelligence in the world uh, and, and, and honing that intelligence into something that can be useful in terms of industry. That is something that we're looking at. Totally. And then you guys have a 85 to 90% of like free trial conversion. So obviously most people just like stay onto the platform. I just want to give that a shout out. Hi, Anthony. Um, so basically I'm curious, like, you know, when you're looking at, so like one of the other piece that I find really interesting is like, you guys are offering education for developers. Right. Um, and then one of the problem you are solving is, um, diversities in tech and can you share with us like what's your outlook for the future of the talent distribution across the globe and how will ld like help educated the market and as well as like you know being profitable yeah so i think that right now we we figured out a lot about we've learned a lot about design we've learned a lot about marketing but one of the things that we still um have like some very important projects on are very very like advanced forms of vetting and training mm -hmm. um that's actually like our core product and that's something we're basically um heads down on right now kind of uh, thinking about that and so in particular uh, out of my phd research came these insights around what makes a professional developer and i'd like to share that with you because whether it's training or whether it's vetting, there's almost a blurred line between the two. Um, because if somebody is not good enough, they can just mm -hmm. go down into the next bracket of learners and then, um, you know, upskill themselves. I think what we recognize, and we describe this a lot on our, our profile here, and we we wonder, um, is what specifically, like, if you look at the world, m half the world controls 5% of the world's wealth. So you mm -hmm. have a really huge opportunity here. If you think about the fact that that half the world also probably like around 60% of them have access to the internet in some form. So, so I feel like a lot of VCs are just totally ignoring this, this, this histogram, like, or maybe they just think it's a too hard of a problem to solve. Um, because I'm surprised that almost no companies out there are directly addressing this particular issue. Um, but specifically, the problem that we found, the reason why people don't want to just like hire a developer on Upwork, or even if they do, they get disappointed later, or the reason why they might spend over budget on top on touring or whatnot, or some of these other platforms are just because, or hire developers who are like totally overpriced. The reason why is because there, while there is a lot of like surplus of great talent coming out of Africa and South Asia who are fresh university grads, really young people right young people fresh university grads if you look at the stack stack overflow developer report out there you'll see that there's just so much influx of young semi semi-skilled technical talent um mm -hmm. with so much promise raw intelligence the problem is that i looked at my in my phd research was what actually makes a developer a professional um and there is a way to sort of like extrapolate this to designers as well but let's just look at developers um first so let's see. It is 
their ability to do agile uh, style of development, but it's also their ability to respond quickly in a remote work setting and their ability to estimate time. It's their ability to do teamwork, submit good, good Git pull requests in a social coding format, but it's also just their core algorithms logic, the kind of like classic Google uh, or FangM uh, interview problem. Uh, um, it's their ability to do logical thinking, but it's also something like their intellectual merit. Like, are they aware of like what's going on in the world? Do they read? Um, it's like all these little factors. Yes, it's their English communication, but a lot of uh, work is can be done by LLMs as well and training people on, on the English side of things. Um, but it's also their ability to document. Um, we talked about responsiveness a little bit, but it's also their ability to like, like, is this person a person who's not just gonna start a project but complete it? Are they gonna take on 10 projects and complete none of them or take on one or two and complete both of them? It's like being able to measure those things really helps. Um, so there is some aspect of soft skills as well in terms of like, um, there are ways to assess divergent thinking and creativity. Um, and we're looking at all of these and we're actually defining like clear like evaluations, like whether it's quizzes, whether it's interview scores, whether it's automated um, evaluations to actually fill out this whole profile for all the developers. We're also running like automated code analysis. We forked uh, Stanford's Moss project, um, which is based on its paper and kind of um, uh, are using that for plagiarism detection. And then um, since since the paper is public domain, we just read the paper and implemented what it said. But then what we did was we customized that for our particular use cases, extracting out the unique code. You see so many developers out there who just do like Netflix clone or, or build out these like clone applications that are copies and they're not really using their creativity. So this, this um, automated analyzer pulls out just the code that they've written uniquely that's not copied from existing libraries and then tries to analyze it. What design patterns have they used? What kind of testing have they done? What kind of machine learning or other third-party libraries have they used? What kind of complexity in the code do we see um, and such? And we're trying to analyze their code, trying to get a really detailed picture around basically like, what is the level of this developer from both soft and technical skills front? We talked about the algorithms, but it's also like what kind of um, uh, special technology areas are they looking at? Um, and what kind of like sort of like how readable is their code? And even if they're not there yet, what kind of lifelong learning projects are they doing? Um, can we background check them? It's this whole picture coming together that isn't really there. And I believe that actually, if we can vet the talent to this level, which we are developing right now, and we've done maybe half of it so far, if we can get them to this level, then it's basically a diagnostic. Because if they're there, then we'll mark them as verified on our platform. If they're not at the level that we require yet, then all we need to do is to figure out the amount of money that we want to incentivize them um, with and use that money to fund them to do the lifelong learning projects required to get them to the level that they need to be such that they're in, in, in demand in industry. And so that's what I would say is what we're doing on both the vetting communication front, on both the vetting and communication fronts, but also kind of on the training front as well. I guess like how do you measure someone's like soft skill because I feel like technical skill is easier as like they could just code and then you track the quotes quality but how do you measure like you know on your sheet there's like entrepreneurial skills and like these other like soft skills 
I absolutely think that they are um, possible to measure. Uh, I think that, um, so what what MOOCs do, uh, um, our online open courseware, they actually will have like graders. So you can, like mixed methods are, are um, you know, uh, well-known in research, like mixing qualitative and quantitative um, sort of um, uh, metrics, uh, but I think, and methods, but what I think is possible, for example, is to take someone, have them answer an open-ended question about um, something that measures entrepreneurial, um, 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 entrepreneurial, like sort of proclivity. Like for instance, what if you asked somebody, um, what's an idea that you have? And mm -hmm. then you have the LLM basically respond saying, okay, cool, thanks for your idea. And then ask them, what's the need for the idea? And then kind of engage in a debate with with an AI bot that basically like looks at the need for the idea. Like say, I wanna build plastic cups and I think there's a need for plastic cups. Then the LLM might respond saying, hey, but there are a lot of companies out there that already build plastic cups. And then it's on the uh, person to who's being evaluated to basically respond saying, yeah, there are companies X, Y, and Z, but I think there's this particular niche market. And then what you could do is you could have the LLM sort of give a score on their idea. And then you could also have third party graders, like other members of the network peer review. This is something that comes out in a lot mm -hmm. of Chris Peach's uh, work about like scaling MOOC uh, answer grading. He's a professor at Stanford and I know a few others um, have also worked on like scalable um, peer review, but basically mm -hmm. have other members of the network also assess their entrepreneurial like sort of ability um, uh, and creativity in that front. And then you can get actually convert that sort of like soft skill to a, like a, a number. Now, is that number gonna be perfect? No, is there gonna be subjectivity involved? Yes, but as long as you have enough reviewers and enough of a process towards this, I believe that you would have more signal than, than just noise. Um, and so that's one way to kind of go, go about it. Totally. I wonder, like, what's your go-to-market strategy? Because I think, you know, Upwork or TopTower or like any other competitors, they're focusing on the clients for a reason because essentially, um, eventually, like, you know, you need to make money to incentivize the developers. Um, I feel like as a client or as someone who may be hiring an engineer, um, one of the questions I would have is like, how fast can we onboard this guy or girl like to you know, start doing work, right? Like, so if they gonna take like, you know, three months of them to like pick up the speed or training things, like I cannot get stuff done right now. Um, what's your idea on that? Or like, do you have to pick a very specific set of clients that are not time sensitive for that matter? Oh, so the talent that we present in front of the clients will be ready to get going on day one. And they are ready on day one. So we don't present learners right? We present professionals who are ready to do work. Mm -hmm. um, it's just how do we build that supply side? Like from an investor perspective, yeah, how do we build the supply side matters. But from a client perspective, it doesn't matter. All we're going to do is give you great talent at a great price. And that that is something that we are going to be able to do better than any other platform out there because of our supply side advantage. Um, now, the way that, so why would somebody like, you asked about the go-to-market strategy, right? It is my belief that if you have good quality at a good price, you don't really need to worry about that go to market too much. Because in my experience, increasingly it's been that people come onto the platform 
and they realize that you can get good quality development at $24 an hour and they don't leave. And, you know, people out there, they say that they don't care about price. Um, and, but people are price sensitive and in the end of the day, and people say that, um, you know, uh, other people, they go onto Upwork and think that they can get, um, good quality, but people are quality sensitive too. So if we have both, we'll, we'll surely be able to attack this market is something that I think, um, and kind of like, yeah, we have all this like sort of go to market strategy. We get clients through SEO. We rank for like on SEO type of search results. We, we, you know, we have different ways of getting customers through various different channels and this kind of detailed on our, our we funder, like different organizations being listed by YCD as a resource and tech stars and Fiverr global companies have used us and things like that. But I think one of the biggest things is just in the end of the day, having good quality talent at a good price will automatically grow. And that's something that I've increasingly discovered over, over time. Yeah. Um, how do you get the best supply? So, you know, we're talking about like, you know, I know that you visited Africa and Nepal and, you know, when you were visiting them, like, obviously, mm -hmm. like, the developers are super enthusiastic. But at the beginning, how do you guys, like, actually font them and they font you? Yeah. So, I mean, here's our Kenya meetup. We had over 40 people there. We're in Kenya, Uganda, Nepal, mm -hmm. India, all over North and South India, Ethiopia, Egypt, Tanzania. Huge. And then all over the U.S. as well with clients and investors. But when we had these meetups, what I discovered... The, the talent or a lot of talent out there, a lot of raw intelligence out there, but the problem is the skill, right? They're not skilled in the specific technologies um, that are required. So um, it, you know, like as they go through the process, right? Like there's a lot of like hard work going through that funnel and some people do drop off, but it doesn't really matter mm -hmm. because at the end of the day, even if we get 10% of the people who are, vaguely interested in software engineering and have the raw intelligence to do so, or same with designers, even if we get 10% of them, we've made a dent in the world. And so um, I think that that's the answer is, is just, um, yeah. But uh, sorry, did I answer your question or could you rephrase like specifically what you were looking for? I feel like one of the things that are just like, how do you, Got the supply and skill, right? Like, how do you kind of like onboard it? A lot of people that are, and then training them in a budget. So you know, we're talking like you're incentivizing people using money to help train them. And then let's say if a regular training program costs like, you know, three months, and then you have to kind of like pay the people to, um, be incentivized to learn, right? These like are technical skills that are going to take some time and work. Um, how do you have the budget to try, you know, 40 developers at the same time? Yeah, so the world is a really unfair place. And the fact is that the cost, um, the, 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 the rate of talent in many of these regions are such that we as an organization can afford to pay for lifelong learning projects in Africa and South Asia, because we know that if somebody do, does like three lifelong learning projects, they'll get a client and, and that'll make, and each of the lifelong learning projects, they're a reasonable investment for us. So the, that's, that's, I mean, your questions were around supply and scale. 
there is almost like an infinite supply of fresh engineering graduates in South Asia and Africa, almost infinite. I, I mean, uh, there's just so many people who are interested in doing software engineering. So that's not, that's not an issue. Now scale and a budget to actually train individuals. That is a more interesting question. So part of the like sort of things that we're doing is like, yeah, we do give out $40 incentives for people to do lifelong learning projects and uh, publish them on our blog and our, our YouTube, and that helps them learn. We're also launching vetting challenges, which are similarly priced and people get those get incentives for completing those challenges. Those investments that are seem small, like a, a, less than a hundred dollars in training somebody can actually make the difference between them getting a client or not. And that client might bring in thousands and thousands of dollars in revenue to the company and in, um, earnings to that talent because um, actually in, in software engineering, it's a few fundamental concepts that you need to learn to, to be able to deliver value. It's just that those concepts are difficult to learn, but you have the willingness in South Asia and Africa. And so that's why the incentives kind of work within a budget. And then the other thing is like, how do you scale it? Well, the AI is helping us scale it a lot. A lot. Like right now we're not able to keep up with the number of people who wanna do lifelong learning projects on our platform because a lot of people wanna get upskilled to the level where they're in demand by clients. But one of the things we're doing is we're using prompt engineering as we alluded to earlier and, and other sort of automated methods to basically streamline these logistics of doing a lifelong learning project, of doing a vetting challenge, using peer review based methods to evaluate the quality of the vetting challenges that people complete to see, are they actually skilled in this skill now? Um, so I think those are the answers to the um, budget supply and scale questions that you've posed. Yeah. Um, I wonder, you mentioned like $40 each person for the life learning project, right? How yeah. long is a life learning project? And then how many people from when you pay them $40 to learn or like uh, to, you know, can actually complete i assume you mean like you know when you're doing like when let's say if i'm an engineer i come onto your platform and then mm -hmm. i like spend you know 10 hours on a lifelong learning project and then after i pass a certain task you pay me 40 dollar. is that how it's mm -hmm. structured yeah so you need to create the artifact so there's there are guidelines on our website if you go to the bottom of our mm -hmm. website, it's called GitHub plus blog projects. There are guidelines on what you need to do to complete a lifelong learning project. But if you actually look on our blog, you can see examples of actual lifelong learning projects and what people have done these lifelong learning projects in. And we've seen so many examples of people whose profiles, they contain a lifelong learning project. And then after they do a lifelong learning project, they are like, you know, in demand enough to get a client. And so um, we saw that with um, several cases here. Um, and so, so yeah, I guess, um, I guess, yeah, like, I mean, yeah. If there's like a, you know, let's say if we, um, do, let's say like if a hundred developer come onto, um, LD talent and then they go through the training program, how many would actually turn out to, um, mm -hmm. start working after let's say 30 months or whatever period of time that you, uh, you think, um, We'll get, we'll, we'll make them get down the course. Yeah. So we have the exact numbers in our WeFunder, but I think around a third of the network has done some sort of lifelong learning project. Um, mm -hmm. Around a third of the network has gotten some kind of a client and like work from clients. Um, mm -hmm. 
so a third of the network has done some kind of lifelong learning project, but not gotten client work yet. A third of the network have gotten client work um, so far. Um, and then a third of the network are, are waiting for the next opportunity. So I would say that's how it, it splits. And so I would say that, um, but when people pursue lifelong learning projects, it's not necessarily the case that all of them complete it. I would say that there is a drop off and um, maybe around, I don't know, I, I don't, I can't put a number off the top of my head, but um, uh, some people do drop off. Um, that is true. Let's say when a StarX company comes to you, what is a touch point that they're going to get? Is that like a um, pool of developers from similar to like a Upwork interface or are they have to talk to a business manager such as yourself or like your co-founders to, um, you know, get directly vetted uh, to, you know, a certain group of engineers? Yeah, so it really depends. So like, um, we just are experimenting with the consulting layer where like we have product management as well. Um, I mean, I'm listed on the platform. Uh, my co-founder is as well. We're just trying to test that and try to see like, are clients interested in a PM type of layer to manage the talent? Because we've discovered a lot of things um, in terms of how do you manage talent around the world? Um, in terms of what you're looking at, you're not looking at, you're looking at an interface that works similar to Upwork at a high level design wise, but uh, there are a few differences. So one difference is you get introduced to the talent um, and you can, of course, like interview the talent. You can get a granular scoped estimate like you do in Upwork. The pricing cut is similar to Upwork, but I think that the work session system lets you get a lot of value early on. The free trial is also a testament to the quality. Like the biggest difference between us and Upwork is that we're vetting the talent. Like you can see the interview scores of the talent on their profiles. And so I think the reason why we're able to offer the first hundred dollars of work for free is because we know the talent will do a good job. Like we know, whereas Upwork would never do that because they don't know that like, you know, <laughs> the talent would convert the client. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's a big differentiator from Upwork. And then, yeah, if people want a more like project management type of service, there are talent at higher rates um, available. And one way, like generally, like we're creating this project success canvas, which one can help clients basically like know the right questions to ask to manage talent um, around the world. But another thing that it has is sort of like a like order of magnitudes, like how much does it cost to build a web app? How much does it cost to build a mobile app? Turns out that it to build landing pages, you can do them in like the tens of hours or the hundreds of dollars. But to build websites, you might need hundreds of hours or thousands of dollars. To build mobile apps, you, you often need um, uh, more than that. And if you hire US-based like sort of project management help uh, on our platform to, 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 to help manage talent around the world, generally you're looking at like a 50% um, increase in budget. So it's not so much because for every hour worked um, by a project manager, you have like five or so hours worked by the, the, the talent around, around the world. And so it tends to, to work out uh, as well. So, yeah. What do you think is like the biggest challenge? Let's say if one day, unfortunately, LD fail, like what would you say would be that factor? Um, I don't think that LD will fail because there's so many backup plans um, that, that are possible, right? Like, I think that there is always demand for engineering talent and there's always a, a supply of like fresh raw intelligence in the world especially in the majority world um but i do think that when you say fail i think that certain experiments that we're doing certainly can fail like for instance 
are there enough clients in the U.S. or are there enough companies in the U.S. that are one able to realize that there's great talent out there and two qualified to manage that talent? If we're wrong about that, then the the consulting angle where we have a PM layer might be something worth exploring um, or building our own products might be worth exploring. The problem is that, okay, um, will we have enough money to be able to run all the experiments? That's another thing. I mean, we have done all right in fundraising, so I think we should be okay. But I think that the other thing that's um, a little bit interesting is uh, our cost of development is low enough and high quality enough that if we are, if our clients, if there are not enough clients who can appreciate that, then we can probably monetize the network in other ways. Um, but, but I guess, um, so those, that's my answer, but what was the like preposition? Cause as soon as you said, if LD fails, then I just heard this after the LD fails and I, I answered that, but what, what was the, the sort of, um, second part of that? Um, I think the part is kind of like, you know, if it cannot scale to a degree, like, I mean, I feel like you can't always run it as a small business, right? Like we have so many developer or like um or like so many like developer companies that's out there to do who's doing kind of some sort of like outsourcing i love what you guys are providing as a um learning program it's sort of like a linkedin learning but for like developers right so i feel like i really like the training aspect but i guess like if it cannot scale what would the reason be and i have a second part of the question is like let's say uh, if today you got linked up to Google and then they decided to be like, hey, we're going to hire 10% of a Google developer on your platform, how are you going to be able to like handle that amount of like workload? And how do you quickly train these engineers to become like a qualified engineer at Google? Mm, okay. So on the failure case, I think that um, we would basically need to find other ways of monetizing. The network that's actually one of my biggest struggles right now is that i see so much value i'm like able to hire talent around the world get good work done i see so much value in the talent around the world but i'm i'm afraid that what if there other people like for instance running companies don't see that value right like and mm -hmm. i'm and if they don't see that value then i need to have another way of monetizing the network because we've built up a great network so we had a few ideas. One is, of course, a sort of PM layer, which we talked about. Another is like kind of building um, products of our own, um, because if people are not able to see our value, well, our cost of development, our cost of doing anything is so reasonable that we could build products of our own. And we already started that. So um, I'll, I'll share with you um, what um, we've built out. So basically, this is called Tia. It's a Pomodoro app. So it basically has you work for 25 minutes, like another Pomodoro timer, but it's mental health focused for remote workers. So during the breaks, um, it gives you motivational quotes, therapy worksheets, psychiatrically relevant advice, other things like that. This was actually an idea that came out of um, a conversation between me and a developer in Nigeria, uh, Jehoshaphat. And these are the kind of ideas that we do want to inv invest in, basically like ideas that can target the US market, but are created by people all over the world. And so um, that is something that is of interest to us. Um, and, you know, mental health is a really important space. 
Uh, productivity is an important space. It's also aligned with our overall interests as a company. So we'd be interested in investing in um, uh, building products like this. And we have the whole arsenal to be able to do this kind of thing very efficiently. So that's another way that we could kind of uh, monetize. Um, so that's the answer to the first question. The second question was around Google. If Google wants to hire 10% of their workforce through LD Talent, how do we scale up? Well, I imagine it would be probably more staggered than that. But if that does happen, what we would really need to do is um, continue doing what we're doing right now, which is automating all of our flows. So our marketing, theoretically speaking, the way that we've set it up should be infinitely scalable. Um, so we should be able to basically reach out through in all of our different channels at greater scale, um, whether it's Slack orgs where we find talent or different Discord groups where we find talent, whether it's through um, SEO or whatnot. Um, there are many ways that we find talent and we will be, I'm not worried about the supply side because there's a lot of talent looking for work right now. What I am worried about is a little bit about how quickly we can automate the workflows of training. And so um, LLMs are helping a lot there. Like the OpenAI API, we use that a lot right now. Um, we're doing a lot of automation in terms of like steering AI, using AI to steer the talent in their lifelong learning so that it is scalable. And I think that's kind of the thing right now, like helping people pick a unique project for doing lifelong learning, something that's offering unique learning value opposed to other things that are offered in the internet. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if people get the wrong answer on a certain vetting test, right? Like AI kind of steering them towards the right answer, helping them learn and things like that. That's where we're investing a lot right now in terms of our time, money, and resources um, to be able to do because that will help us be able to scale the supply side training. Totally. I wonder, um, you know, we had a discussion during Christmas on that discussion. Like we had a, we had coffee, but anyway, so yeah. we were chatting about like the, you know, the top players in the industry are, some of them are like privately hold and some of the like some of the really big player originally raise a lot of money, but they end up failing. Mm. Um, why? Oh yeah. A lot, some of the players out there, they raise a ton of money and they fail. And some of the players who raised less money actually were more successful. Um, that's a very interesting uh, point about this um, uh, talent space. I think that this is not a SaaS app, right? Like a SaaS app scales a different way than a talent marketplace scales. Right? You're not going to help people learn the fundamentals of software engineering and become a software engineering expert in one year. It takes a little bit more time than that. Uh, but um, what we think is that uh, basically clients, uh, I think the most successful companies out there in this space have good relationships with their clientele. Um, so whether it's um, different consulting companies or whatever your clientele is, startups, fast growing companies, and they have good re relationship with their clientele. So I think that's one thing. Um, I think another thing is just that uh, you can't expect to just send a bunch of emails. I mean, we send emails too, but you can't expect to send a bunch of emails and just gather huge adoption. There's a lot of like effects, right? Network effects, like having a, a blog out there on our, our technical blog might create a, start a relationship with a potential customer that later on they rediscover us, they warm up to us and they become a customer. Like those are the kind of ways that we've, we've gotten customers in the past. And so I think we're, we just have to be it in it for the long run. Like there's a VC um, in the Valley in San Jose who basically told me like in this business, if you just stick around, you will 
tend to be successful. It's not going to grow overnight like a, like a viral app, but if you stick around and keep improving the network, you should be able to be successful. And so that is something that, that we're quite interested in. And we know it's not easily replicable, right? Like if we, if we train a ton of talent and make sure they're really good, um, it, it, that stickiness is not going to go away overnight either. So I guess that that's my answer to the question. What is, what are you going to do with the money? Um, and like how, what's your like 10 year perspective on growing LD? Yeah. I mean, 10 years, um, I mean, in the last 10 years, I was basically in school, um, mm -hmm. undergrad, master's, PhD, and I learned so much for this business, basically. I think that in the next 10 years, we need to automate all our processes around marketing, vetting, and design. And I think we need to play our bets right. So no matter what, I believe that there is a way to monetize this network. Uh, a network of really smart talent um, who are either skilled or gaining skills is surely monetizable. I think that the the way we monetize it, um, I'm not sure which way is gonna be the best way, but we're basically, we need to do all three ways, right? Like we need to build a great talent network to be able to um, have a PM layer actually work because the underlying mm -hmm. talent need to be good. We need to have a good project management layer for if, you know, building products in general like digital products in general. So I think that I don't know what will happen in the next 10 years, but I think that as long as we do a good job at vetting the talent, and as long as we do a good job at the um, sort of automating the management aspect, um, we will find um, the right market or, um, you know, um, be successful in multiple markets. So, yeah. um, totally. I wonder in terms of like you know if you're looking for investors and partners um okay number one is like how are you spending the money that you have raised and number two is like um who can help you like what kind of company or things that you wanted to partner to to help oh hi jira hi uh how do you handle Trust. Okay, so so there's two questions. There's your question. Mm -hmm. There's also curious. Yeah. So one of our audience has a question. It says, um, "How do you handle trust?" Okay. So do you want me to answer that first before I talk about the sure. the okay? Sure. So um, I think that one of so there's a lot of elements to trust. Um, I think one of the biggest elements is the way that work happens. It, it happens in a way that's transparent to the to the um, clients, um, but also the pricing model uh, uh, handles a lot of the trust, right? So we're trying to build relationships. And that's why like, first we start off with the, we pay for the LD talent pays for the first hundred dollars of work, because basically what we're trying to do is say like, hey, if talent estimate that like, hey, I'm gonna take, they estimate that like, hey, I'm gonna take five hours for this particular task. Do they actually take that much time? Um, and slowly a little bit of trust develops. And then those work sessions that they track, the 30 minute work sessions, they're describing clearly what they're working on. Um, and that also is like a little bit of trust in there, like little features add up and they all build trust. Um, and then those work sessions are approvable by the clients. So that's that approving process of approving these individual 30 minute work sessions. Um, that is a 
built, that's a bit of trust as well. And then the system works like an escrow so that client funds hours, but then they can always withdraw the hours that they haven't used yet, um, the, withdraw the funds that they haven't used yet. And then the clients are expressly, basically expressing their approval on each work session uh, over time. And then as they build more trust, they often bump these talent up like, hey, I don't need to approve at the 30 minute level. I can approve at the one hour or even eight hour level. And so that's how we've seen trust build up eventually to the point where people actually build up trust with talent around the world to the point where they actually are ready to hire them directly and then they pay our buyout fee and hire them directly. So that's one way we've built trust is through pricing and the work session system. The other thing about trust is the profiles. So one of the things that we're storing on the profiles is um, like data about the top talent. And so one of the things we do is, you know, the talent want to make sure that they have a good reputation on our platform, because basically like a lot of the data that we track on our platform is around how quickly talent respond. Are they going to ghost you or not? If somebody ghosts you, then they're banned from our network. Like there's a lot of mechanisms in here. We're trying to track a lot of data so that basically we can understand like, who is this individual? How are they behaving? How reliable are they over time? And measuring that in terms of responsiveness, in terms of earned hour, in hours, in terms of work session approval. So those are other attributes. Of course, we have like legal mechanisms as well um, in terms of, for instance, um, you know, uh, we do see talent uh, signing NDAs and uh, intellectual property agreements. Yeah. So intellectual property related trust, like we have seen different sort of setups. So when clients, regardless of whether clients ha handle like a PM who's based in the US to manage the talent or whether they hire directly, um, um, uh, uh, hire talent directly on the platform or whether they hire PMs on the platform who are based in the US and then they have them manage the talent. Regardless of either way, all the talent are like available to sign intellectual um, property related agreements, NDAs, IP protection agreements and such. But then the other thing is we try to help the clients like prevent even the need for that. So like, I mean, yeah, sure. You signed the agreement, but you shouldn't get to the stage where legal is even a problem, right? You should set up your code base and your data database and other architecture in a way that, um, basically prevents the need for excessive sharing right so if you have set up your local code base in a way such that people can work on your local code base without looking at production data that's like one important step another thing is you don't need to share all of your code base you can set it up into sub modules that's a lot of what like either you could do or you could have your uh, project manager do on the platform to create uh, permissions for access to any type of code or any type of data uh, so that the permissions are only like necessary and then they're also revocable. So those are some of the ways that we do. So one, some from a software standpoint, some from a legal standpoint, and then one is actually from a um, network standpoint. So okay. if ever we have an event where talent don't respond, right? And there's a concern about talent responding, we've actually had meetups in all these different locations. So it's not like we're just a completely online entity. There is a, like a physical presence of meetups that have happened all over the world in Kenya and, and Uganda and Nepal and stuff. And so if a talent, if talent disappear, we actually message the group. Um, so we message the group saying like, hey, we can't hear, we haven't heard from uh, so-and-so today. And the group comes in like a community and say, hey, let me go get a hold of them and and make check on them and see how they're doing. So we've built these like sort of like trust 
based mechanisms in that sense too. So like if there's any violation, it's not like the talent are just going to go through and disappear, whether it's an intellectual property um, violation or whether it's um, any other type of violation. There's a whole community and a reputation, not just of the platform overall, but of each of the individual profiles on the platform based on who knows them on the network. So that's another way to, to create that sort of trust and accountability. And the meetups definitely do help with that as well um, as the Slack org. Um, but yeah, um, uh, that is my answer to the question around trust. Um, Jerry, like basically clarify the question. He said, I was mainly concerned about intellectual property related trust. Yeah, so on the intellectual property related trust, I think the best solution is on the software side. So only share what you need to share or have your like US-based project manager share it on everything and then have them specifically allocate certain parts of the code base and to the talent only local host. I think that's a good way. So they don't have the talent don't necessarily need to have access to the uh, production data or the production servers. Um, so that's, that's one thing. If you're concerned about like code itself being copied and things like that, then sharing subsections of code or delegating specific parts of the project um, uh, uh, could be viable options as well. Uh, but I think like with anything, there is some level of trust, whether it's a person in the US or whether it's a person abroad, there is always an element of trust that needs to be built over time. And so I think it's not just like a one fold, like um, you sign this legal agreement, there's legal agreements, there's also the work sessions, there's also the permissions software wise, um, and data wise, there's also like or deciding how much you want to share, there's also the decision of whether you want to have like a US based PM kind of uh, handle things. Um, and then allocate sub portions to talent so that the talent don't need to have access to everything. And then finally, there's like the accountability of the network itself. So there's a there's a lot of lot of elements in here um, uh, that that go into 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 building trust. Um, yeah. Um, okay. So finally, we have the last question: is um, you know you have raised some money and then like, how are you planning on executing it better with the money? Yeah. Yeah. So we have a lot of important projects coming up. Like we have some details along around, like, what are we actually going to use this money for? Why do we need um, the money? Um, so I would say actually increasingly, I'm feeling like vetting is the vetting and training is the most important part because, you know, some of the more money will go into marketing and we do talk about this, but I think that the quality of the product needs to be exceptionally high. The, and the quality of our service will only be high when the talent are really, really good. And the way that we make sure that the many of our talent, I would say out of the 600 talent on our network, around 150 are really, really good already. And they're earning on the platform. A lot of them are earning and doing well. But I think that in order to make sure that more and more of the talent are able to be really, really good, we need to have those automated um, sort of automated scoring of their vetting challenges, automated scoring of their lifelong learning projects, automated like diagnostic, and then this is what you need to do to actually improve and just see who actually goes through that process. Because once they go through the process, you know that they'll be really good. So I think that on the vetting front, being able to automatically analyze code, 
those are that's where a lot of our money and attention is right now and so that's where most of the money will go into maybe not most of the money most of the money will still go into marketing but probably like 30 40 percent of the money will go into like improving the platform such that we can produce a really good quality service by making sure that the talent are really really good um and that is um automating a lot of our infrastructure and then that'll almost like um make the marketing as well the marketing dollars like so much more valuable and useful because when you send a profile that's really stellar that has like screencasts of like pr diff videos describing pr diffs and talent like clearly articulating what features they built and why they made code changes you automatically will see that you know those profiles are are, are recognized as for their value and by people who view them who receive that marketing message um you'll automatically see that happen so so i think that um yeah but platform improvements and marketing are, are the main areas there will be some on on the management front um but a lot of that is like automation of management as well so it's all, almost like entirely we're almost all of our budget is like how do we write software to automate things that other organizations do manually and how do we write software to um automate vetting and training and uh, how do we write software to automate marketing the, the, it, so basically at, 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 and the answer to your question is the investment will go into writing software but the software will be used for vetting, training, marketing, and a lot of other areas. Amazing. On that note, um, thank you, Gobi, for coming onto the show today. And where can we find you? Yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I guess uh, that's where I'm decently active. I can share my LinkedIn in the chat if that's there possible. Um, oh, I can't post here. But anyway, my if you just search on LinkedIn, Gobi Dasud, G-O-B-I-D-A-S-U. Um, and it'll, it, you'll find me very, there are very few Gobi's. Awesome. Amazing. Thank you so much, Gobi, for coming on to Adventure with Grace. Thank you, Grace. You had some fantastic questions and covered almost everything we're working on. So appreciate that. You asked great questions. You're the best. Okay. I'm going to end stream. Right.